Hello, hello, and welcome to the Finding the Unicorn in You podcast. What a beautiful day to inspire lives. My name is Jaime Gabriel Ragosa, your host, and I am so excited to have you here. Let's get ready to meet some fantastic unicorns and learn how to unleash the inner unicorn in you. Let's get started. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Finding the Unicorn in You. Today, I have a, a very special guest who is a licensed marriage and relationship therapist, a speaker, and author of Many Voices, One Truth and is the owner and founder of Healing the Mind and Spirits in Southern California, where she leads a team of therapists. She is also a therapist at the College of the Canyons in Santa Clarita Valley, where she counsels college students on a variety of mental health issues and concerns. So without further ado, here's Tracy Terrace. Uh, thank you, Jamie, for having me. I'm glad to be here. Of course, and thank you for coming on. So uh, there are several topics that I want to tackle with you. But first of all, let's talk about this book that you just published. So... Tell us a little bit about it and what led to it. Well, the book is about belief and choosing who you will believe. And what led to it was one of my baby sisters, I have five sisters, and one of the younger sisters had a stroke when she was in her late 30s. I went out to help her along with uh, two of my other sisters. We flew out from here in California to Texas to help her. And because I'm a marriage and family therapist, I do a lot of work sometimes with what we call case managers and case managers mm -hmm. are people that will help um, people with social services and things like that. When I was there, I was trying to put some services in place for her because I knew she wouldn't uh, be able to return back to work right away. Mm -hmm. So in doing all of that and standing in all of these long lines and filling out all this paperwork, for whatever reason, I just started feeling like anxious and overwhelmed. And that made me feel like I just wanted to go home, like I wanted to get out of there and then come back home to California. And then that made me feel like I was being selfish. So I felt guilty. And I spoke with a girlfriend about it. And she was saying that what you're feeling has nothing to do with what's going on there. It has to do with what you believe about yourself. And in talking with her, we uncovered that what was coming up for me was when I was younger, my mom, I was about six or something like that. My mom told me that I would die young. She traced a uh, line on my palm and told me that I would die young and that she would be devastated. So I spent like much of my childhood and much of my early adulthood fearing that I was going to die young. But mm -hmm. at some point I went and dealt with that. I went to therapy realized that was my mom's issue. I'm not going anywhere or whatever. But deep down, even though I dealt with it deep down, I felt that it was still true. There was a little nugget of it. And that's the thing about healing is we heal in layers. Like for some things, like you'll go and you heal and it's over and done with. But there are sometimes you'll heal something, whether it's a relationship, and then something happens to bring it up deeper. So it caused me to ask myself, well, what do I really believe? And in my therapy practice, I work with a lot of people using a tool called uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, CBT. Mm -hmm. And CBT looks at how you're thinking, what you're thinking about, that's your cognitions, and then how, what behaviors can you put into place to change what it is you're seeing and how you're perceiving Thing. So I realized that many of us as people, we believe a lot of things that we're not even aware of. So this book is, it's called Many Voices, One Truth, and it's talking about 
the different voices at play in your head that compete for your attention. Mm-hmm. So I talk about the different voices and uh, give um, differentiation. Like I differ- I teach the reader how to tell the difference between the voices and then tune in to truth. It's not about positive thinking or positive psychology. It's what is true. Like the truth for me was, you know, I'm going to die whenever I die. Like my mom didn't get to choose and get to say, well, you're going to die young and I'm going to be devastated. It wasn't the truth that this big thing was going to happen. The book, it uses a lot of CBT techniques and prayer techniques that I use in my practice to help people overcome negative thinking and overcome lies that they've been believing about themselves that's keeping them away from the life that they want to live or feel like they can live. I'm really glad that you wrote something on this because I think nowadays people are starting to hear more of these automatic negative thoughts that we get. And some of these voices are not necessarily ours, but people that have told us over the years, like different things about us, whether it be with our appearance or our lifestyle, the way that we have to do these things. And we start internalizing these things and really criticizing ourselves and living by the life that they wanted us to live, but not necessarily our true self, our true identity. And there has to be healing that has to go through that. You're the only one that can live your life. Mm -hmm. Parents can't live your life. Whatever your parents believe you ought to be doing and should be doing and whatever, that it's not their life to live. Like they had a hand in bringing you into the world, but you deserve to be here as much as they do. And you deserve to carve your own path in life. But you're right. A lot of those voices are old negative tapes and old things that were said to you throughout your life. And somehow they've become the truth. Like when there's a, I talk about in the book how there is a a process called limbic imprinting. And limbic imprinting is from when you're very small to about pre-adolescence, you take in information indiscriminately. You don't judge it. You don't judge whether it's true or not. If it's told to you, it is true. You take it in as your truth, whether it's positive or negative. Part of what cognitive behavioral therapy does is identify some of those truths that are not true that you've uh, taken in, looking at it, processing the pain around it, processing the experience around it, and then you finding what is the truth for you so that you can heal. And they do say that their first couple of years are the ones that we get impressioned the most. And that's what we are subconsciously ingrained, what, how our life is going to go. And sometimes I think we don't even realize that we're doing these things because these voices are so automatic that we don't even realize that it's happening. We will subconsciously have actions just because of force of habit to do these things. And like for me, I was told at a very young age, like I was always a plumpy boy. I was, I was, I grew out of it. I'm not as big as I used to be, but since I was four years old, they told me you're fat. Your, my nickname was big boy, like that all throughout my whole life. And they told me that you're fat you overeat and you're always going to be the size. And that was ingrained in me. And then one of my aunts even told me to the point of, you're probably not going to end up in a very successful relationship because of how big you are and you're not going to live long. So that was always ingrained in my head. And even in high school, when I lost a tremendous amount of weight and I was as thin as I was, I still thought I was so fat because of the way that people told me. And in college, I started going, I started binge eating and it was just a whole mess. And it wasn't until I went to therapy and I really went through all of that 
healing that I realized, you know what, being fat is not my identity. And this is more so an identity or a label that people placed on me. And that's not going to define me. I can always change that part of me if I choose to or not. Well, you're, you know, I'm tracking what you're saying because it's making me think about when I've worked with teenagers who believe like they have either have an eating disorder or body dysmorphia disorder. One of the most effective tools that I used with them is that butcher paper that you can get from the butcher. Just getting a big roll of that, mm -hmm. unroll it on the floor, have them lie down on the paper and then trace their body around it. But before I do that, I have them trace what they think their body looks like, what the okay. silhouette it looks like. And then I flip it over and have them lie down and I trace their body. And you could see through the paper that their body is this, but they've drawn this. Mm. And it's just like, it helps them to see that your perception of yourself is off. Like what you're seeing or what you think is there is not really there because you were just lying on this floor. You felt the marker tracing around you. So this isn't something I made up. And then I have them th them take it home and just look at it whenever they're like when we're in the part of therapy where they're learning to speak the truth to themselves and they're learning to. And I've done this with grown up people, too, not just teenagers, but it's teenagers mm -hmm. often battling that as far as who I've worked with. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. And I think that's a very effective like exercise, it's especially something that you can tangibly see. Wow. This my image of what I thought I was. It's not really what I, who I really am. And so, sometimes that's what's helpful is finding something concrete or something tangible that they can't really argue with. Like you mm -hmm. can't. I mean, you can't say that you didn't hear the marker and feel the marker tracing next to you. Exactly. So, yeah. And I think that's. I think that's what makes it really powerful. So for you, what led you to this career pathway of being a therapist? Like why? Like what was uh, the pivoting point? You're like, you know what? This is my path. I went to therapy myself and it worked, but I had no intention of becoming a therapist. I was referring all of my friends and family to my therapist because she was awesome. Her name is Dr. Barbara Cohen and she's in Tarzana, California, and she's still working and she's awesome. Um, I had no intention. I would just send people to Dr. B, right? And But then one day I was at work, I was working for a consulting firm. And I was in the kitchen getting my coffee to go get ready to sit down. And I had this thought that you need to be a therapist. And it was just out of the blue, but it resonated so strongly that I went back to my desk and I called my husband and three of my closest friends and said, I just had this thought. Like, what do you think? And all four of them said something to the effect of, oh my gosh, I can totally see you doing that. Or you would be so good at that or something like that. I just, I just thought about it and I was like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply and see what happens. And I applied to one school and, and I got in and here we are. That's amazing. That's a, sim a similar story that I coincide with where you only apply to one place and you're like, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And then you get in. <laughs> so it's really like, this is my calling. This is what I have to do. It's so funny. No, I love that. And it's rare, I think, when people do that. And you do it in a, in a self-sabotaging way and a little bit saying, I'm not going to get in. I'm just going to apply and I get in. But you actually get in. You're like, okay, I actually have to commit now. So for someone who may want to go into this path, what, what would be some advice that you give them to kickstart their, their journey, the unicorn journey, transform them into becoming a therapist or getting into this helping field? 
So can I answer that like with regards to therapy and then answer it with regards to in general? Yes. Okay. So with regards to being a therapist, I would say like, number one, it is a calling. Like one of the questions that I get from people all the time is, how do you manage hearing all these stories all day and then going home and not taking it with you? I would say one of the number one skills you have to have is the ability to compartmentalize. Like you have to realize that the stories that you hear, they are the person's story and you're just one person with a lantern holding that lantern, helping them to go down the path. So just understanding that there is a degree of separation that you have. And I think that some people are pretty good at that. Like I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing. I could probably count on one hand the times I've taken either a person's journey home with me or a family's stuff home with me. And it's been like two or three times and it was earlier in my career, but I do have colleagues that do that all the time. So it can be an easily burnt out because there's a lot of sadness in the world. Like some of the things that people go through is pretty heavy. You have to be able to understand that, like differentiate, separate yourself from the story, like be there to be a part of the story uh, as far as you holding the lantern, but knowing that it is there story. So that's number one. Number two is if you find that you're someone that your friends come to all the time anyway, asking for advice and it just rattles out and what you say sounds right and sounds wise and it's helpful to people, then you're probably a natural counselor at in some way. There's lots of different kinds of counseling. But for marriage and family therapy, to be a psychotherapist, You have to have a a bachelor's degree in, it doesn't have to be in psychology. In fact, a lot of uh, graduate schools would prefer if your bachelor's degree was in something else. Like my bachelor's degree was in journalism, which was great because you have to do a lot of writing in Mm -hmm. school. You have to have a bachelor's degree in something. It can be psychology, but it doesn't have to be. And then you would have to get at least a master's degree. If like, if you wanted to, work in the field of psychology, there's all kinds of positions that you can do. But if you want to be a therapist or have a private practice or work in the capacity where you're providing psychotherapy, you have to at least get a master's degree in clinical psychology um, or a a PsyD, which is a, a doctorate in clinical psychology. And then after you're done with school, In California, there's 3,000 hours you have to put in of experience. And it's not all 3,000 face-to-face. There's some that's family, some that's supervision, some that's groups. They count it all kinds of ways, but it has to add up to 3,000 hours before you sit to take the exams for your licensure. And when I was getting licensed, it was two exams. I think since I've become licensed, I heard that it had gone back it had gone to one exam and now I've heard that it's gone back to two exams again, but I'm not, don't quote me on that. But it's one or two, it's one or two exams that you have to pass in order to get your license. It's very intense. I, I actually direct a case management program. So a lot of my case workers want to sit there in two, two different trajectories. Well, three. Well, <laughs> if I really, four. One, they, they get tired of it and they get, they're like, I don't want to do this. So that's number one. Two, they love case management and that's what they want to do for the rest of their life. They're okay with that. Or the other two that I was mainly thinking about is MFT or MSW, a master's in family marriage therapy, and then master's in social work. 
and you both can do counseling, but they're significantly different. So as a marriage family therapist, how would you say that differentiates versus like an MSW? So an MSW, if you, if they get, if it's LCSW, which is a licensed clinical social worker, that is the exact same thing as a therapist and can provide therapy, can open up a private practice on their own or work in a facility providing private practice. But the MSWs, the LCSWs, the licensed clinical social workers, a lot of times they have training in case management and connecting people to the community, whereas the MFTs don't really have that. What I heard about my school is that a few years after I graduated, they started adding that component. So the program became even more rigorous because most of the jobs that, if you go into private practice, then you don't have to provide case management. It's a good idea to have a stack of resources that you can provide to people, um, but you can refer people out for case management. But most of the jobs, at least in California, will require uh, some case management, some connection to the community. So now when people are getting their MFT degree, there's a fair amount of that, whereas that wasn't the case for us. But the difference between an MSW and an MFT, like I said, the LCSW is the same as a therapist, but the MSW It's working in social services, usually with DCFS or adult protective services or the mental health division, state department, things like that, or working in mental health facilities where they are either aiding a a therapist with a case, a case meaning like a family or a client or something like that, and providing community and connection services on top of the therapist providing therapy. I've seen that bridge closing and closing. They are intermixing a lot more. And before it was, you get your licensure and therapy and you just do therapy and then you just refer out to a case manager. But I have seen more and more therapists do case management in there because there's, the more you think about it, we we are such a complex per, like creature where, where human beings are so complex, multi-layered. There's not just one problem or one aspect of us that sometimes needs healing. There's different components especially what we went through and how we grew up. So sometimes you need a lot of different helps. And that's why you say sometimes it does take a whole village of different resources to really help it one, one, only one specific individual. Yeah. And, and I think that's awesome that people are getting more training. And because like you were saying, the, the different trajectories that people go to, sometimes people decide they don't want to do this and they just get out. But I think sometimes people also look at the MFT track and the LCSW track and decide, well, I do want to help in this field, but I don't really want to do psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. They're being provided the tools to go either way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I think one of of the biggest deterrents that I've seen, at least my staff, not want to go into therapy is those hours. Because when you hear 3,000 hours, that's very intimidating. So how was that process for you getting those hours? And was it hard getting placements or like, how was the process? Well, for me, I needed to eat anyway. So I just got a full-time job that would, where I could get the hours. Like, mm-hmm. because there's places that you go and you do all these hours and they're not paying you. But in the state of California, there's lots of places that will pay you. Mm-hmm. For a job in a community mental health center, a hospital psych ward, in different schools. There's so many places that where it's your nine to five, but you're also earning those hours. Like, you won't count all 40 of those hours of that week, 
but you do count a big chunk of them. Like you count mm-hmm. all face-to-face therapy. You count all the groups that you do. You count all of your supervision. You count training. Like when you go to trainings to learn a different skill or tool or anything. So I would say, unless you're rich and you don't really need the money, I would say try to find a place whereby um, it could also be your nine to five. Or if it's a part-time job, it's, it could also be your part-time job. Because then you're combining the two. And it took me, I think it took me three years. Like I got my, I graduated in uh, July, 2007. And I was turning my hours in, I think in December, 2000. Okay. Around that time, October, November, December, 2000. And then I got the go ahead to sit for licensure in June, 2011. And I sat, and then I took the second exam uh, towards the end of 2011, and then I was done. So it did take a while. But again, like I said, I I think it's if you can find a job where you're earning your hours and earning the food on your table, then that's probably better because you have to work anyway. Yeah. And some of these agencies actually give you a pay bump once you actually get your licensure. after you pass. I received received the pay bump and uh, a promotion. Once I got my license. Yeah. So it's not impossible. It just takes time and dedication. Yeah. You just have to put your nose to the grind. I've heard of people finishing in, in two years. Mm. That sounds almost impossible, but I guess it depends on your youth. Like at, when I did this, I was older. Like I was married. I had two kids. Mm-hmm. I had a whole lot of other things going on. And, but some of my cohort, they weren't. They were single and single men and women and whatnot. And, they could put their nose to the grind a little harder than what I was able to. Yeah, know? it just depends on what you got going on. And yeah. do it at your own pace. There's no rush. Yeah. And you're eventually going to get there and you're going to have the rest of your life to practice and help people. So just take your time and do it. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so if you had the opportunity to go, to go back and tell your younger self one piece of advice that would help you excel a little bit quicker in your journey, what would you tell yourself? I think I would have. I think I would tell myself to go ahead for the doctorate. Like one of one of my references, when I when she was writing the reference for me, she goes, why are you stopping at the master's? You should get the doctorate. You've got the great <laughs> And I was like, well, all I want to do is sit down and talk with people and help them. I don't need to get the doctorate. But the doctorate gives you a little bit more authority. And, and if you're and unless you go into private practice, like when you have a doctorate and you work for some of these agencies, you do they do pay more. Mm-hmm. And it, I always knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I think that I didn't, I wasn't really thinking of my writing when I did it. Like Dr. Tracy Terrace on the cover of my book would be <laughs> a lot more weight than Tracy Terrace in the LMFT, right? Think? So I, I think I would tell my younger self to go ahead and just do the whole thing because it's more knowledge. You have more tools to help people and it gives you like different, a few more directions that you can go into like if you wanted to be director of some mental health facility or something like that or a professor at a college and things like that there's just more options I love that piece of advice and I'm constantly ingraining that into everybody that I meet and people tell me I'm a really bad influence in trying people to rope them back into school uh <laughs> so personally I'm actually finishing up my doctorate program right now and <laughs> my PsyD program <laughs> it's been a headache but um, I started in the middle of the pandemic. So when everything was chaotic, I was like, this is the right time for me to start. Well, go back. Just go to school. It's never too late. doesn't matter. One of my classmates right now 
in my cohort. She is 76, I believe. And she's getting her doctorate degree. She's like, it's never too late. And I want to have it on my wall before I die. Then I said, do it. So it's never too late. Go for it. And just give it a shot. Yeah. Go more power to her. It's like, if you continue to learn, your brain continues to develop Mm -hmm. as an atrophy. And you start having, you won't start having as many memory problems. But life is for the living. And we're always going to either be growing or just shutting down. That's awesome that she's 76 and getting her side E. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I always told her, I was like, I don't know how you do it because I'm stressing out and you seem so calm. (laughs) If I go back, it's going to be in something fun. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's, I think the highest you can get in writing is an MFA. So that's just another master's. But I don't know, like maybe history or just something that would be like a lot of fun to put that much time and energy into. It probably won't be psychology. <laughs> psychology is one, but if- yeah, just challenge yourself. Do it. Do something that you'll find pleasurable and just go for it. And that, and then you'll get your doctorate degree. So, what would you say? Be to, I know you shared a little bit about your story with the book and a little bit of your past, but what would you say would be the most challenging transition or obstacle that you faced in your life thus far? There's been a number. I would say. The most challenging was getting a divorce. I'm, I'm okay. remarried now. I, I'm, I'm married, happily married uh, to my husband, Michael. But my first marriage, he was in the military and we were just young. I was 18. I would not have, I do not, I would not recommend anybody get married at 18. I would not recommend anybody get married without a prefrontal cortex because that doesn't come in until you're like 25 years old. <laughs> Just just very young, and he was in the military, and I ended up going to the Philippines, which was fun, but I was far away from my family and everyone that I loved, and it was just me and him. Like, we created a community out there. Like, I met some people and, and made friends and stuff like that, but I think that when that was over and it was time to transition out of, that's one of the hardest things uh, that I've ever had to do. Got it. And I'm noticing that, especially the new generation, they they want fast. They want everything now. They're very impatient and want to be an adult so quickly. And I'm always telling the younger generation, take your time. This is their 20s is a time for you to make mistakes, learn all these things and really try to taste the palate of the world. So I, it's interesting that you said that your brain doesn't finish developing your frontal cortex is until you said 25. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about that. So the brain, like we have a mammalian brain, which is. The oldest part of the brain where the, that's where your anger and your amygdala and all of that is. And it develops this way. The prefrontal cortex is the part, the protruded part of the brain. And that doesn't fully come in until you're about 25. Like nowadays they're saying 23 for girls and 24, 25 uh, for guys. And they've said for years that women mature uh, quicker than men. I don't think that's necessarily across the board or anything like that. But the prefrontal cortex is your if-then part of the brain. So if Hmm. I do this, then this could happen or would happen. But the interesting thing about that is when I was working with teenagers a lot, every time I told them, every time I said, well, your prefrontal cortex hasn't developed yet, so it's not like you can make the best decision. You can't do the if-then they would start doing if then. Like, <laughs> this proved to me. So then I started doing it all purpose. Like I started, <laughs> I think the first time I said it, it was just a piece of psychoeducation where 
I'm like, well, the prefrontal cortex doesn't develop until about 25. It's really hard to think through that stuff. And then I started doing it on purpose. And they're like, they started, if I do this, then this could happen. And then that, I'm like, okay, yeah, you're kicking your prefrontal cortex up where, whereas most people have to wait until they're 25 and stuff. So they just start enacting that. But that's why when you go for car insurance, it's 25 is the magic number because <laughs> when to break the rules for safety mm-hmm. and you know when to think through, like they don't want, because a, a lot of times young people, especially people that are really rule followers, they follow rules so much that they don't know when to break them for safety. Mm-hmm. And that causes problems. So yeah, you can't get good insurance until you're about 25 because the insurance company is waiting for that if-then part of the brain to develop, that <laughs> planning and organizing and all that. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because I think I started taking life a little bit more seriously at 26, 27. I started, I made so many mistakes going from below 25. And you really think that you're invincible. You feel like you have a little bit of this God complex that I'm not going to die. I can probably like, I'll survive anything. And as soon as you hit 20, like 25, 26, you're like, okay, I bleed. I can actually like die. <laughs> My actions have consequences. I can go to jail or worse. And then reality really hits. It slaps you in the face. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so what would you tell, let's say if a young listener is listening right now, who's under the age of 25, uh, what are some ways that or advice that you would give them to be able to develop that if then what um, complex that you were saying? Start asking yourself that. Like, I like your advice about like tasting the palates of the world. Like, you don't really know what you like until you're like trying different things. Like, try your hand at this. Try your hand at that. Like right now here in Santa Clarita, for whatever reason, pickleball is a big thing. And I think pickleball is something that it's was growing. We <laughs> have a lot of adults doing that. But what I would say to kids is you have a, a mind for a reason and your mind is designed to think through, mm-hmm. you know, like don't rush through your decisions. Don't go by emotion. Sit and ask yourself, if I do this, what are some of the paths that this could possibly take me down? Mm-hmm. And if I do that, what are some of those paths? And it doesn't mean that you don't do it if it ends up being, you know, not a great path, but it might mean that you tweak how you address certain things or how move into certain things. You're just asking yourself questions like you're and yourself will answer. I one of the things I tell my clients is most people already know the answers. They already know what to do. It's just that it's buried beneath all of this grief. Mm-hmm. It's buried beneath depression and anxiety. It's buried beneath trauma and abuse and loss issues. My job is to go in and help you peel away some of those layers so that you can get to the answers. But a lot of times, if you ask yourself the journalism questions of who, what, when, where, why, and how, as you're thinking through something that you want to do, you'd be surprised. Like, and and I, I do think that there's no, I, this isn't a scientifically proven, this is something that I noticed in working with teens. I do think that perhaps that does, if it doesn't kickstart the prefrontal cortex, you develop that skill of asking and thinking through before just jumping headlong into things. I think that's great advice. And if you 
I know there's a lot of stigma with therapy now that you mentioned you know, a lot of people, a lot of us go through trauma, whether we want it or not. And it comes in very different ways, different shapes, sizes. What advice would you give people, regardless of their age, who may have a stigma with, with ther therapy? How can they get started and how do they even know if therapy is right for them? I would say go on something like Psychology Today psychologytoday.com and put in your zip code and look at some of the profiles. Okay. If you read the profiles, you'll find two or three that will connect with you. Call them and ask if they offer an initial telephone converse consultation. Most people do anywhere from 15 minutes to 30 minutes. And then you can assess because you, it, conversating, even on the phone, there's an inner, there's an exchange of energy. Mm -hmm. And I will go with your gut. And if someone doesn't feel right for you, like if they seem like they're a know-it-all, if they seem impatient, wh whatever the case is, if you don't feel 100% comfortable with that person, keep looking. And then understand that therapy is a process. You know, don't be afraid, like especially if you have trauma, because the thing about trauma is people are sometimes afraid to tell their story and afraid to talk about it because they're afraid of the feelings that they're going to have to deal with. But a good therapist at the end of session will help you to tie some of that up and hold it and put it aside until the next session. But the thing about telling your story is the more you tell it, the more you distance yourself from the pain of it. You want to get to the point where when you can talk about it and there is no negative charge around your heart when you're talking about it, you're able to understand that okay, this is part of the tapestry of my life. This is part of my story. It doesn't define me. It's not who I am. It's a chap. It might not even be a chapter. It might be a couple of pages, mm -hmm. chapter, but it's not the whole book. It doesn't get to define you as a person. So I would say uh, take heart and take courage. There's a lot of different kinds of therapies, therapists out there. You might even want to Google schools of thought for therapy because there's cognitive behavioral, Mm -hmm. There's that's one I use narrative therapy. Uh, um, there's um, object relations like Google and see what all of them are and see what resonates with you. There's also people who are holistic in nature, like one of my colleagues. She's also an interfaith minister and a life coach and a therapist. Mm -hmm. Different like if you have different belief systems, there's. Uh, therapists who are familiar with the Jewish tradition, who are familiar with Christian traditions, who are familiar with Islam and Buddhism. But like, do your homework and get like three or four that you get on their calendar to have that initial phone call. And um, don't call anybody who doesn't resonate on paper. Like, <laughs> with what they're offering, then move to the second point where you make the phone call, have the conversation. And then the third where you schedule an appointment. And even if you schedule that first appointment, if you go and it doesn't sit well with you, don't go back. You don't owe any therapist a second. Like there's some therapists out there that will say you have to pay for 10 sessions up front. But even if you pay for that, you can ask for that back. Mm -hmm. Like nobody should be asking that. But like people are doing business in all kinds of ways. Nowadays, I don't do that. Like mine is everything's online. You can come in if you want or we can do telehealth. But at the end of the day, the system will charge for all of the sessions that's been that's on the calendar. But for people that are like, well, you have to pay for eight to 10 sessions up front. Even if you don't like that first session, you can ask for your money back. 
Good to know. And I think that's one of the things that people are afraid of. I know I've had family members who come to me and it's like, I tried this therapy thing and it didn't work out for me. And I was like, how many people, how many providers did you try? Yeah. And then, and they're like, well, just one. And I was like, no, they're not all the same. It's like every person is different. Therefore, every technique is different. So try it. You have to shop through. You know, yeah. you're not, it's, it's like doctors. If you're not getting the right treatment from that doctor, then advocate for yourself and ask for another doctor. You have to shop around and find the people in your life that are going to aid you the most and based on the way that you like to be aided. Exactly. Yeah. Do your homework first because it it is a big deal to go in to pour your heart and your story out to someone that's a stranger. So make sure that stranger has a line of thinking that it that coincides with yours, like the, the resources they're offering. You like the way they sound on paper and you like the way that person talks about it over the phone and then schedule and then go from there. Exactly. Time has flown by and I'm already at the last question. So in general, you've accomplished so many good things. You've written, you published your own book. You've, you got your MFT. You open up, you have a practice. You've essentially are a unicorn in your industry. So for someone who, and it could be either in therapy or in general, how can someone kickstart their unicorn life to really achieve the dreams or the goals that they have? This is going to sound counterintuitive, but find a niche. Like I'll throw out a net and try to be everything to everyone. Pick like like some small populations mm-hmm. that you want. Like for me, it's creative people. It's people who have lost their voice and need empowerment and Christian people and Buddhist people. Like mm-hmm. because a lot of times people that have faith, they're afraid to go to therapy because they're going to be told you need to read the Bible and pray and get over it. But mm-hmm. a good therapist is not going to do that. A good therapist might tell you to meditate because meditation is good. Mindfulness, mindfulness is good. And you can do that in your faith system. A lot of people who have lost their voice, they feel like I can't tell my story because my story took this trajectory that someone else spun for me. So they're afraid. Like I'm the perfect therapist for someone who has lost their voice, for someone who needs empowerment because I learned how to empower myself. And I latched on to people who empowered me. Like I reached out for that. And then for creatives, we live in LA, like I live in LA and there's a lot of creative people here. And the creative brain is different than most brains. Creative people's brain, not all creative people, but a lot, they tend toward melancholy. They tend to more leaning more into the emotions. So like helping them to one, normalize that and see that there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that this is what you lead with and then teaching them how to navigate that so that they can operate in the world. So the biggest thing, if you want to find your inner unicorn, figure out who are the people you love the most, who Mm -hmm. are the people that you want to serve the most, and then tailor your practice down to that. Because if you're like, oh, I see this and this, then you're just in a sea of a bunch of other people that are doing that. And Mm -hmm. you don't doubt. That is so true. And I think a lot of us want to help as many people as possible, but you need to see what you're really good at, what interests you, and how can you help that specific population? Best advice. I think you inspired me in just saying that too. So (laughs) thank you. This has been such an amazing conversation. I've loved it. And I wish I can probably go longer, but if not, this episode will probably be like three hours. But if somebody wants to either get in contact with you, actually hire you to be a therapist, or just wants to buy your book, how can they get in contact with you and find you online? 
Well, for therapy, I'm healingthemindandspirit.com. You can go onto my website and there's a staff tab and you can look at all the bios of all of the therapists there and then choose one. And then the phone number is on the website. If you live in, only if you live in California though, because we're all licensed to see people in California, we offer in-person, which is the office here and also telehealth services. And for my writing, my uh, website is Tracy Terrace, T-R-A-C-Y-T-A-R-I-S.com. Go on there and then subscribe to my email list and you will get uh, a freebie there. I, I think what I have on there now is a stress threshold evaluation that allows you to answer all these questions about your stress level to see where you are, where stress is concerned. And, and then you will also receive emails and blogs from me. I'm on Instagram at Healing the Mind and Spirit and at Tracy Terrace. And you can find the book on Amazon.com. Perfect. And other too, but Amazon is the most popular place. And, and it's the title, Many Voices, One Truth. And you could put in that title on Amazon and it'll pop up or put in my name and it'll pop up. Perfect. And I'll include all the links in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, you can just click the link and it'll take you right to your cart. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. Like I said, it's been a wonderful conversation. And for the listeners, if you like this content, make sure to leave us a five-star review. Episodes come out every Friday at 7 a.m. And until next time, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. 